in the book of Genesis, and we're being taught and learning about all the questions of life. Who are you? Who is God? Those are the questions we're facing, those big questions. We, we've, we're finding out who God is, and uh, we're finding out who we are. And uh, one of the persistent things that I think that you've been seeing as we've been moving through the book of Genesis, as we take up chapter 10 today, and 11, and 12, maybe... But is this, is that something catastrophic happened in Genesis chapter 3. It's not a cute story. It's not a Sunday school story to just sort of laugh about and color some, you know, fig leaves on people and red apple and all that sort of thing. This, what happened in Genesis chapter 3 is pervasive and persistent. So persistent that the Bible says all of us are born in sin. It came through one man, Adam, who rebelled in the garden. And when we read and look at Genesis, it got so bad in the time of Noah, sexual perversion, wickedness, that God brought judgment upon the earth, and all living things died. And God made a promise afterwards by grace and mercy that that wouldn't happen in that way ever again. And all of a sudden, you know, here we have this man, Noah, and he's a man that walks with God, and he finds grace in the eyes of God. And you see him, and you're you're so happy, and you're thinking, wow, what an angel. And right after uh, the accounts of the flood, and Noah and his family's deliverance from the flood, I mean, you have this amazing thing. He comes off the ark after not hearing from God for over a year. God put him on the ark and for over a year didn't give him any more instructions. That must have been rough. But interesting, as soon as he gets off the ark, he builds an altar and worships. And you keep thinking, wow, what an amazing guy looking after his family, leading his family, doing great. And the next thing you know, we see that Noah gets drunk, and it's no accident he got drunk. He planted a vineyard, and a vineyard takes a while to grow. And he gets naked in his tent, and that's a, especially in this culture, was a really perverse and weird thing that happened. And his son saw him, and uh, something there happened that's sort of unmentionable. We don't exactly know what, but it's unmentionable, and that son becomes cursed through the grandson. Remember that? Ham the line of Ham. He's the one that saw his father, and God curses the grandson, Canaan. They'll be the servants of the other brothers. But the Lord God blessed the line of Shem, and that Japheth's line will become enlarged through Shem. And so we've now come, remember, I just want you to follow this line a little bit. That Adam and Eve have some kids at the beginning of the Bible, Cain and Abel, right? And there's a murder there. A brother murders another brother right off the bat, right after the the, uh, fall in the garden. And... To replace that brother, God gives Adam and Eve another son, and his name's Seth. And we've been following following the line of Seth through this first part of the Genesis. And we come to Noah, and you can follow through on that. You could get the tape. And Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And I just went through that story. Ham uncovers the nakedness of his father, tells people about it. Ham is cursed, Canaan's his grandson, and Shem and Japheth are going to prosper and be enlarged. And that's where we come to today. We come to chapter 10. It's called the Table of Nations. Many people call it the Table of Nations. And uh, what I would do if I were you to be a good student of the Bible is I would go out and purchase Nelson's Book of Maps. It's the best book you can get. I'm kidding, my friends over here. I say it all the time in Bible college about a different book. Or the Satellite Bible Atlas, and I would get a good map of the Table of Nations. In fact, I'm going to have our staff put up the Table of Nations now. And we see that the nations of uh, the world descend from Noah in chapter 10. That's what chapter 10 is all about. We're going to run through it very quickly. We're going to point out a few things. 
But here's what I would do is I'd get a map to be a great Bible student. And I would read through chapter 10 and I would find where they all settled throughout the world. Let's do it real quick. This is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, chapter 10, verse 1. We start off with Shem, Ham, Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. Now listen. I'm going to point out some things to you today. Moses, who we believe wrote this book because he received the genealogical accounts from different people who had kept the accounts, he writes this and the Lord uses him by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write it. But Moses was no dummy. And God used him and he had some literary techniques. And one of the techniques is he's not telling you every single person in Sham, Ham, and Jephthah's line. In fact, you're going to see 70 different people or lines right here. 70, there probably was more. But he's given you the important ones. If you wanted to do a detailed study, you're not going to get every single one. But you do get these. And sons were born to these ones, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And you get Japheth first. Are you catching that? You get Japheth first. And the sons of him were Gomer. What a name. You could watch as we go through these. You can find them up here. Magog, Mayday, Maydai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, Tyrus. And then he goes and finds Gomer's folks. And the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz. You following along? Rephath, Togermah. These are like the Indo-European peoples from the shores of India, or from India to the shores of Western Europe. That's who these people are. And the sons of Javan are Elisha, Tarshish, Ketam, Dodanam. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands. Now listen, this is really important that you mark this in your Bible or mark it in your head. This is important. I believe there's a literary technique here because... This is showing you the people who are separated. Everybody nod your head if you hear me say separated. They're separated and they have their own language. I want you to consider something. Take a time out from right where we are. We're going to do a little rabbit trail. Go over to chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. What I'm suggesting is it's possible that chapter 11 in chronology, wake up here, came before chapter 10. But that there's a technique, there's a reason why the writer by the Holy Spirit is using this in a way to frame the issue. Listen to this by Kent Hughes. Perhaps you've noticed that the Babel story in chapter 11 pictures everyone in the world gathered in one place speaking language, while chapter 10 gives the table of nations in which everyone is described as scattered in their lands with each or each with their language, etc. Logically, the gathered world in chapter 11 ought to perceive the scattered world in chapter 10. Everybody with me? And in fact, it does because the order here is thematic and not chronological. You catching that? Moses chose to do something thematically. And the reversed order, listen, listen, by Kent Hughes, listen to this. The reverse order is a stroke of genius, a stroke of genius. Because the absurdity of the attempt to build the tower and to remain as one people in chapter 11 is framed by this present reality of nations spread over the whole earth in chapter 10. Though the table of nations sequentially follows Babel, the table serves to inform the story of Babel. 
Fascinating, isn't it? The mention in chapter 10, 8 through 12 of Nidrod's, Nimrod's kingdom. Did you ever call your brother Nimrod? Well, I think he called me that, by the way. He's older. The mention in 10, 8 to 12 of Nimrod's kingdom in connection with Babylon and Shinar is revealing because Nimrod's name, listen, Nimrod's name means we shall rebel which perfectly characterizes the heart of the builders of Babel. Also, the mention in 1025 of Peleg, in whose days the earth was divided, places the scattering from Babel chronologically during Peleg's time. So I guess the point I'm trying to make to you is, as I read this when I was younger, I'm going, wait a second here. They're scattered, but they weren't scattered. How do you put the toothpaste back in the toothpaste holder? You don't, but it's a literary technique that Moses is using to amplify what happened in chapter 11. Everybody cool with that? That's something to consider. Some people don't believe that. Some people do believe that. But it's a fascinating thing. And so you keep going, and we're back in chapter 6, and the sons of Ham were Cush. Cush. Now we're talking about Africa and the Far East. Are you finding them up here? Mizram, Put, which is Libya, and Canaan. Canaan. Remember, Canaan was who? The grandson of Ham, remember? And they settled in the Semitic areas. There it is. Oh, look at this. The red box. And folks, I don't know if you turned your TV on since October 7th. That pace is the most contested area in the entire world. In fact, when you go up on the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is, the Muslim buildings, that's where the Temple of God used to sit in the Bible. This is the most disputed piece of land in the world. And it's all biblical. And it's spiritually a battle. And you feel it when you go there. So there, Canaan, you need to know that. The Semitic people, the sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah. The sons of Cush, or excuse me, uh, Sabta, Rama, Sabdaka, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. And Cush, this Cush guy from Ham, which one is cursed? Shem, Ham, Japheth. Which line was cursed because he saw the nakedness of God? Shem, Ham, or Japheth? Go. Ham. See, here's what I'm trying to let you do. When you go home and you study the Bible, you do it for yourself. You get a map. You don't just say, oh, I don't know where the book of nations is. They got tons of maps on the internet. I picked one. And you go, and then you get to Ham. And every time you read Ham and Canaan, you go, wait a second. Back in Genesis, they were cursed. That was the line that was cursed. And Cush begot Nimrod, the rebellion. And he began to be a mighty one on earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Listen, in your Bible, when it says before the Lord, it's a phrase in the Hebrew that means an offense to the Lord. This guy set himself up and all that he did, his society, he set them up to rebel and to be an affront and to be and to contest God. That's what this is telling me. And when it says he was a mighty hunter, he probably was a mighty game hunter. But that's not exactly what they're talking about here. This was a hunter of souls who wanted people to rely upon their self, their strength, their ingenuity, and to get away from God. Trusting Him, believing Him, walking in faith. That's what Nimrod is and was. And this story is going to last and uh, play itself out all the way until the Lord sets everything right. Because watch, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, 
And b- the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, Kelnel, in the land of Shinar. Where's Shinar? It's Babylon. I don't know if you know this, but when you get to the book of Revelation, what book of the Bible is Revelation? What book? First or last? And what number of the book of the Bible is it? It's 66. It's the last book of the Bible. It's when God puts everything right. And one of the things you see in the book of Revelation is God dealing and judging Babylon. So you have two great cities of the Bible or areas, right? Israel and Babylon. Everybody with me? And you find the roots of this. Why I'm trying to make this a big deal is because when you're going to be a Berean and a studier of the Bible, you're going to remember that back in the beginning or in Genesis chapter 10, right at the beginning of the Bible, man set himself up even after the judgment, even after the flood. And you see how pervasive sin is. That people don't like to be in submission to God as sinners in our state. We don't. We like to build towers to the Lord so that we can get to God or we can get to truth or we can do our own thing without having to bow down. That song we sang today, I'll bow down. I'll look up. Sinners don't want that, you see. And such was I at one time. And so were you. But Nimrod is this hunter, hunter of souls, and he sets up a city called Babylon. But he also goes to a place called Assyria and built Nineveh. Anybody know where what book of the Bible took place around Nineveh? Say it. Jonah. Folks, in 720 or so B.C., Guess who ripped out the northern tribes of Israel and took them back to their place? The Assyrians. In 586 B.C., remember, that's, a couple, that's about 1,500 years from where we are now in the Bible. And around 586 B.C., in the third wave of destruction, guess what area or country, yes, took out the two southern tribes... Judah and Benjamin, and took them into exile, Babylon. This is no mistake, and its roots are found right here. That's why I want to tell you to you. So here he is, Nimrod is responsible for all these cities, especially Babylon and Assyria, and he built Nineveh. Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and Risen between Nineveh and Kela, and Mizram begot Ludium, etc., etc. Canaan begot Sidon. His uh, firstborn in Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Gigashite. These are Canaanites. When you hear, without looking up there, when you hear Canaanites, you're going to think contested area where Israel is now. Aren't you? Okay, good. Here's why. I want you to know your roots. I want you to study the Bible for yourself. And I want you to see the origins of these things. Because Jesus believed in chapters 1 through 11. If you don't believe me, go listen to what he talked about. He talked about chapters 1 of 11 of Genesis. Well, Canaan does this. Sidon, uh, all these tites, Sinites, etc., And you can go through them. And afterwards, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. And then you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adamon, etc. These were the sons of Ham. What do you think about when you hear Ham? Say it again. Curse. And according to their families and according to their languages in their lands and in their nations. That's the same talk as in verse 5 right there. They're repeating it for this line. And the children were also born to Shem. Shem, Ham, Japheth, sons of Noah. And these children, this Shem who was blessed is the father of all the children of Ebert. No, Eber, sorry, Cindy. 
and Brad and kids. But many believe this is where the word Hebrews came from. The brother of Japheth, the elder, the sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, Arafaxad, Lud, Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gather, Mash, Arafax begot Selah, Selah begot Eber. To Eber was born two sons, one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almadad, Sheleph, Hazmareth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, etc. All these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go towards Sephar. You could just keep looking at the table of nations. Get it out. If you want one, I'll email it to you. You can look it up on Google, though, or any search engine. Sorry, Gabe, I shouldn't be endorsing one or the other. But anyway, these were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages and their lands, according to the nations. You heard that before? That's the third time now. Okay, I'm making a point here. These were the family of the sons of Noah, according to their generations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. And I want you to know something. We're all brothers and sisters. You know this thing about different races and all that sort of thing? Listen, we're just, because we went to different place, we genetically adjusted to the places we live. But we're all brothers and sisters. I don't care what color skin you have. Your skin color is like 0.01% of your DNA makeup. I mean, it's so minuscule. That means nothing. Skin color is nothing. We're all brothers and sisters. I don't care who we have been labeled as. We all come from the same place. You want a great uh, discussion on that, get this book, New Answers book. You can pick it up at the Ark, or you can order it online from Ken Ham. He talks about all of that there, or Dr. Henry Morris in the Genesis record. But the point is, listen, listen, I know, no one wants to do a genealogy. I understand. But the Lord is trying to get you from Noah to Abram in his word. Why? I'm going to show you why. When you get to verse 11, now the whole earth had one language, one speech. That's a little different than chapter 10. Some people believe it's in fine chronological order. Others believe what I read you. You be a good Berean. But it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Now listen. And they dwelt there. The whole earth had one language and one speech. And the idea here, the writer is telling you, the idea here is that this group of people wanted to go one place and contain itself, which would be in direct rebellion from what God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And then after the flood, what God told Noah was to be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. Don't go into one little place and make this utopian community. You get what I'm saying? So what the writer is pointing out to you and to me is that whoever these people are, we're going to find out here in a minute, They weren't to just go to one place, Shinar, which is Babylon, and just sort of make this community and do the thing that they were going to do with one language and one speech, because then they would be in rebellion against God. Is everybody with me? And listen, they found the plain and they dwelt there, and then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Why is that? Because they're in Shinar. They don't have stone. So they got to do bricks because they're up in Babylon. And they make this bricks and they bake them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And a lot of people right there say, okay, there's another uh, disobedience because God said he would never put judgment on the earth via a flood and the mortar there is sort of like your modern day caulking. You were anticipating something leaking. And so it's like, oh, okay. 
you don't believe the promises of God. So here you have a disobedient people forsaking what God says. Is everybody cool? You following along? And they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar and they said, come let us build ourselves a city. Oh my. And a tower. They're in direct rebellion against God. And I wonder, listen, I wonder, are we doing what God has asked us to do? We know God. We've heard from God. He's asked us to do something like love enemies, forgive people, share the gospel, baptize people, disciple people. And I know we come here and the pastor tells us that, but see, really, where the rubber meets the road isn't Sunday from 1030 to whatever time, you know, 1245 or whatever. (laughs) You know where the rubber meets the road is when you leave. What's in your heart? What's in my heart? Am I obeying? Am I being obedient? Am I moving out in love? Am I listening and doing what God asked me to do, not what I want to do? I'm afraid in church in America, we often do what we want to do in life. But nevertheless, there is this people who said, we're going to make ourselves a city. Ah, God couldn't be upset with us if we did a good job of constructing the city and doing well. And then, and then we're going to make a tower. You know what's really fascinating about that tower? This was probably somewhere in the 2000s, maybe 2500 B.C., when Herodotus, a Greek philosopher, lived during the 500s or so, 400s B.C. In his historical account, he claims he saw the Tower of Babel. Did you catch that? This is a real place that really happened. Herodotus. You can look it up. This isn't some great story that you can just talk about in, you know, sort of allegorical terms. This really happened. They wanted to build themselves a city and a tower. And you know, if you study the Babylonian religions, that they had these things called ziggurats, these towers unto the Lord. And... They, it was a kind of a complicated structure. These people weren't stupid. They were highly intelligent. And they would have on the top floors, it would be reserved, sort of like, no, never mind. They would be reserved for deity worship on the top floor. Why? Because they were reaching up to God. They said, we could get there ourselves if we just do the right things. That's what was happening. And so when they say they build a tower, these are the sorts of things that the Lord is directing us to, to understand what it was like. They were going to build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And here it is. Let us make a name for ourselves. I want you to file that away because that comes into play in the next chapter. We want to make a name for ourselves. You know something? I hope it's in this chapter because it just came into my head. I know the purpose of your life. As I sit here and I just read the Bible, that's all I have to do. I read just like you do. I I know the purpose of a life. You, You know what it is? Well, turn with me over to John 15. Please be in John 15. Please be in John 15. Oh, yes, it's there. Write this down in your journal. Write this down in something that you write in. You want to know what the purpose for your life is? Well, the Bible tells you. (laughs) Look in verse 5 of chapter 15, the famous verse, Jesus talking about him being the true vine. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burnt. Now watch, if you abide in me and my words 
abide in you. If you, you're, if you come to the family meeting today, you know what is the burning passion of our souls as the leaders here? This is the burning passion. This is why our feet hit the floor in the morning. This is the first thing I think of. No kidding. How am I going to accurately, responsibly, prayerfully, purposefully get the word of God into the people that come to our fellowship? That's what we want to do. Why? Not so we can lord anything over you so that you can be equipped for your ministry, so that you can grow in Christ, that you can be a Berean, and the Lord would raise up in you your ministry, and then we go out and we multiply. Because as Chuck Smith, the leader of Calvary Chapel, used to say, healthy sheep just automatically, he didn't say automatically, but healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. It's not me. I laugh when people call me to pray over somebody. Like, I mean, I'm happy to do it, and I love to do it. Or if you want me to come visit in the hospital, and I understand it, and I'll do it, and I love doing it. But you can do it, is the point. There's nothing special about the pastor. Because the Lord has given you ministry, too, you get. And... I'm saying this is the passion of our life because if you abide in me and my words abide in me, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. There's going to be spiritual vitality in you if you abide in his word. Not if you go out and buy the 10 keys to happiness books. Five steps to whatever. It's the word. Nothing against books. I've read books I'm a book reader, but it's the word that transforms us. But listen, I know the purpose of your life because here the next verse tells me. You want to know the purpose of your life? Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified, that you, who's he talking to, his followers, his disciples, that's who you are, that you bear much fruit, but don't stop there. So you'll be my disciples. But I, if you go over... Um, to chapter or verse 16, you don't choose me, but I choose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask my father in my name, he will give you these things I command to you that you love one another. Your purpose in life in one sense is to bear the fruit of God, the eternal fruit of God, so that others can come and be refreshed from your life. It's the life of Christ in you. He doesn't call it fruit as an accident, just coincidentally, it's fruit. It's refreshing. It gives life. That's what the character of God is. He's developing in you by the person and work of the Holy Spirit as you abide in the Word. Everybody with me? So when you go back to chapter 11 of Genesis, but by the way, that fruit is to glorify God. Everything that Jesus did, what, 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 even, I mean, Jesus, the works he did, the things he did was to make his father big. When Jesus was done with a miracle or something, he didn't go, oh, I I hope you think I'm such a nice guy and uh, I did a really good job today. His hope and prayer was that you would see the father glorified. Amen? Right? So that when you say you make a name for yourself, You see, that's the antithesis of the life that God has for you. That's my whole point. You with me? And this is pervasive everywhere. I love football. Does anybody know that? What do we see? You're going to see it today in the NFL. Won't from the Steelers so much, but probably the Jaguars. They're going to score a touchdown. I love the Steelers, but man, oh man, come on, guys. And they're going to score a touchdown, and they're going to run in there, and they're going to go like this. And I'm like, whew, watch it. That's a dangerous place to be. And that's, I'm picking on football because that's what I know, but that's just pervasive corporate culture. 
uh, school culture, uh, extracurricular culture. Everything is about me, me, me. It's the total opposite of the life of God. You see it right here in Genesis chapter 11. They wanted to build a city, be together, not listen to what God said, not listen to the promises of God, not listen to the, uh, the, the uh, commands of God. And they wanted to, why? Because they wanted to prop themselves up and not God. But the Lord came down to see the city. He knows. He watches. We think we're getting away with stuff. We don't. And he sees it. And the tower which the sons of men had built, and the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Sometimes, you know what the Lord just does in judgment while we're here? Just gives us what we ask for. And he just says, okay, you want it your way? Go for it. And that's what he does here. And then you see something that you saw in the early accounts in Genesis. You see a little reference here to the Trinity. Nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us. Do we believe in one God? Yes, in three persons. Let us go down and there confuse their language. Why? So that they would be prevented and not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face Uh, of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. Of course, Babel. We still say it today. He's just babbling on. Can't understand what he's saying. Babel. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because here the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now, you've got to think of this in a different way than probably what you've always thought about. I say it in here all the time. It's like the Lord, that old game you played as a kid. Humans do their own thing. God covers it in grace and mercy. Humans do their own thing. God covers it in grace and mercy. Humans do their own thing. God covers it in grace and mercy. And here you see it. I think the forced separation of people should be seen not as a judgment, but more of the mercy and grace of God to protect them from something he knew was bad for them. Get it? Because they, listen, just like today, they were trying to make themselves better off. Listen to what I'm saying here. They were trying to make themselves better off, make a name for ourselves, prop myself up, pick myself up by my own bootstraps, be a strong person, be able to have my own ingenuity and not depend upon God, just be independent. It sounds like America. They were trying to make themselves better off. Listen, listen, listen. But God wanted to make them better because they were sinners And they needed a savior. And they didn't even know it. They wanted to make themselves better off, just like we do, government. Duh, 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 duh. Dun, 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 dun. God separated and put them different places and said, I want to, I'm going to make you better. You say, well, okay, better. Yeah. I'm going to bring in a guy named Abraham, (laughs) Abram first. And so here's what happens. This is the genealogy of Shem. Here we go again. It's like a reiteration. But be careful that you switch over it or jump over it and get bored. You know why? This genealogy right here is in the line of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. This is important stuff. And here you go. You got Shem. He begets this guy named Araphaxad, however, and he lives 500 years and has sons and daughters. Then A lives 35 years, begets Selah. After he begets Selah, A lives 400 years, begets sons and daughters. Selah lives 30 years, begets Eber. Here it goes again. And after he begets Eber, Selah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years, begot Peleg. Remember these people? 
You could look them up on the table of nations. I know, I'm being repetitive. I'm doing it on purpose. And after he begot Peleg, he lived 430 years, begot sons and daughters. Peleg to Ru, Ru to Serug. Serug begot Nahor. And after he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. And Nahor lived 29 years. And now here's what I want you to know right now. You've just read about the grandpa of Abram. That's Nahor. And you've just learned that he had a son named Terah, who's the father of Abram. And after he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years, begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. You guys are like glazing over. I get it. But don't glaze over yet because here comes the genealogy of Terah. Terah begets Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begets Lot. Anybody know Lot? He's the nephew. Write this down. He's the nephew of Abram. Almost one-third of the book of Genesis deals with this guy named Abram who later becomes Abraham. This is really important for your study as a Christian, a Bible student, and more importantly, a worshiper of God. And Haran died before his father, Terah, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, let me put up up here. Let's put up up here Abraham, his journey. Can we do that? Yeah, we can do it. Good job, you guys. Thank you so much. And here is now getting into Abram's travels. Okay? The Ur of the Chaldeans, you see it down there in Mesopotamia. You see Babylon a little bit of it. And I want you to see Haran all the way at the top. Nineveh over there. Down here is Canaan. Get yourself oriented. Get a map of Abraham's journey or journeys. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abraham and Naor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And Sarai was a looker. You need to know that. Because it comes into the story here in a minute. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Echai. But Sarah was barren, and she had no child. And Terah took his son Abram. Now listen, I'm not going to do it, but if you turn to Joshua 24, verse 2, write it down. Joshua 24, verse 2. You go, man, the Bible, it's got halos and people are so in, you know, just so perfect and wonderful. Really? Because in Joshua 24.2, we learn that Terah and his family worshipped other gods. And his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abraham's wife, or Abram's wife, and they went out with them from the Ur of the Chaldeans. Do you see that? To go to the land of Canaan, they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah, who's Terah? He's the father of Abram, were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now listen, you got to get the whole story here. And if you get the whole story, this becomes powerful. And one of the places that you get the whole story interestingly enough, is in Acts chapter 7. And I want you to listen to me now, because we're going to go on to chapter 12, 1 through 3. Because in Acts chapter 7, it makes it clear that Abraham was called, or the call of Genesis that we read about again in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, listen, listen, came to Abraham while he still lived in the Ur of the Chaldeans. You can look it up. In chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, it's really apparent that Abraham, while he still lived in Ur, not Haran, listen, this is really important, received a call from God to do some things. 
Is everybody with me? And then when you get to Genesis chapter 12, God reiterates it for Abram. You with me? That's why you can't just read just little portions of the Bible. You got to read the whole thing yourself and know it just little by little, step by step. So uh, Acts chapter 7, it's clear that Abram, while he still lived in Ur, and he was full of a, he was a family, in a family that worshiped other gods. Incredible. Why? I have no idea. Other than it's the grace of God and the mercy of God, and the calling of God, and it's the same thing for you. When you look at your life, do you say to yourself, well, of course God wants me on his team. I'm me. No, 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 no. You recognize and I recognize as a repentant sinner that we're saved by grace through faith. Don't you know that? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And it's nothing of yourself. It's the gift of God. It's a gift of God. It's not of yourself. It's not of myself. You know why? Because you and I would brag about it or boast. That's what the verse says. And man, is that true. And here's this family, nowhere near the area that God is going to reveal himself to the entire world, nowhere near. And they're worshiping other gods. And God says, in my infinite wisdom that maybe you know, we don't know about right yet. It's hard to know everything about God. As much as we can know, we do know, but we don't know everything about God in the sense that his ways aren't our ways. And he looks down in Ur and he sees this family and he goes, you know that son down in Ur that I love so much? I'm going to ask him to come up and live in the land of Canaan. And so he does. And you could go there in Acts chapter 7 and read how Stephen says that. And the Lord had said to Abram, listen to this. Can you imagine sitting on your bed, playing with your soccer ball, your Game Boy? All of a sudden, the Lord comes to you, the one true God of the whole creation. And he says, you know what, Abram? I want you to leave your country. Oh, okay. Who is this? The one true living God. I want you to get out of your country. Oh, and by the way, I want to get you away from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I haven't shown you yet. Everybody with me? And I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, folks, and I'll make your name great. Doesn't that sound eerily familiar but backwards? from what the people in Babel wanted to do. They wanted to make a name for ourselves. We want the Lord to be glorified, and in the process, people know your name. You see the difference? (laughs) It's unbelievable. Or they may not know your name, but whatever. The Lord's name is glorified. So I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, and there's the gospel right there in Genesis chapter 12. We've seen it now several times in the book of Genesis. You get it? Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country. And we learned here that Abram went with his father and a nephew when the Lord had called Abram out of the country and away from the family. Now listen to this. Do you know this? Everybody, I know, I'm almost done, promise. Do you know that the Bible says it changed Martin Luther's life? This is what changed Martin Luther's life. He was reading through the book of Romans, and he read again, and it hit him, the Holy Spirit. Say it with me. The just shall live by assurance. No. Faith. Just shall live by sight. No, by faith. The just shall live by boosting up themselves, making a name. No, you're going to trust me. And here, God is taking through his grace and mercy this family, this man out of Ur. And listen, he's going to live by faith. I always tell this to Jan and she goes, duh. 
I think it's some big revelation that the Lord put on my heart. And she's like, yeah, I knew that. I always thought this, the just shall live by faith. I'm going to be so good at faith, I'm going to develop it. I'm going to maintain all the rules. I'm going to be a good little boy, and I'm going to live by faith because I read that the just shall live by faith. And she goes, and, and then I say, you know what? I'm not so sure it means that totally. And that's the duh part comes in. It's like the Lord takes a person in his grace and mercy and says to you as he calls you, hey, listen, you're going to live by faith. And you're going to grow and move, and there's going to be mistakes along the way. Like Abram, look, Abram takes his family. He wasn't supposed to take his family. He went to Haran. He was supposed to go to the place where he was shown him, which was eventually Canaan. So there's like this partial obedience going on with Abram. And the Lord is saying, the just shall live by faith. I'm building you and growing you so that your faith will be found as precious you know, more precious than gold or silver and all those scriptures. Understand what I'm saying? It's not me conjuring up my faith, although I do participate with the Lord. It's the Lord taking me through all these situations because the just shall live by faith. And Abraham shows you this. He's moving and he's going and he's not doing exactly what the Lord says, but the Lord doesn't give up on him. So he dwells there in Haran, not to where God had promised, a land that I will show you. God didn't show him Haran. God was trying to show him Canaan. Spurgeon said this. Listen to this. Halfway obedience. Listen. When you obey just halfway or sort of, it increases our responsibility because it's a plain confession that we know the Lord's will and we didn't do it. Abram had received the call and knew that he had done so, else why had he come to Haran? He admitted by going as far as Haran that he ought to go to the whole way to Canaan, and so by his own action he left himself without excuse. You hear that by Spurgeon? Not me, by Spurgeon. And I want you to see something. The Lord didn't give up on him. Sometimes in the Christian world, we look up and down the pews with our friends or whatever, and we go, "Uh, you ain't living like I'm living. I'm a guy who's living by faith. What are you doing? You mess up. You fall off the train. Look at me. I'm here every Wednesday night. I put money in the box. What are you doing? The Lord's up there like, dude, lay off. I'm bringing this person along. The just shall live by faith. Let me do my work. You get it? So he does. And this is called the Abrahamic covenant. This is huge. This has implications all throughout the Bible. If you don't remember the Abrahamic covenant, you're going to be lost a lot in the Bible. But if you do know it and you do understand it, you're going to understand everything that's going on in the Bible or a lot of the things that are going to go on the Bible. And guess what? On Monday morning, when you turn on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or wherever you go, And you see what's happening over there. You're going to go, whew, Genesis chapter 12. The God God here gave a unilateral covenant or made a unilateral covenant with the people that he's going to call Israelites that they're going to have a land. You're going to find out how big that land is here in a few chapters. And that the people that bless Israel The people of Abraham, by the way, we're grafted into that. Those who bless him, you'll be blessed. And in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How in the world could they say that? Or how in the world could God say that? It's because that the Messiah is going to come through this line. You get it? People wanted to be better off. God said, I don't want you to be better off necessarily. I want you to be better. I want you to be healed. I want you to be forgiven of your sins. 
I want you to be full of the Holy Spirit and moving on and sharing with others so that before I come back, or my son comes back, before the son comes back, I want many to come and know me so they'll be tucked away in heaven with me. So Abraham departed as the Lord and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then Abraham took Sarah, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions that they had gathered, the people whom they had acquired in Iran. God was unbelievable. He blessed materially Abram in Haran, in the wrong spot. But anyway, he blessed him. So they came to the land of Canaan, Amon, Aram, or Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem. Do you see Shechem down here? Yeah, there it is, in the land of Canaan. That's, that's a funny place. It has Mount Gerizim on one side, Mount Ebal on the other, and that'll come into play later in the Old Testament. And they, they were right there in the city, right between these two mountains, or the hilltops, however you want to say it, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and lots of things in the Bible If you want to know what they are, I'll send them to you. Happened here. And the Canaanites were then in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give you this land. Why? Because. Period. What was God doing? What's God doing? He's taking a little land. Look, Canaan. I always tell you this story. One guy on his deathbed told me to come over. I'm going to evangelize to him. I'm going to share the gospel with him. He said, tell me this. Why did God pick Israel? What? God is going to display, the Bible tells us, his light to all the nations, not just the Jews. Through this nation, God's going to display his love and grace and mercy to all the world, the Bible tells us. And that's where he picked. That was the Lord, the Creator, picked there. And there, look, Abram built an altar to the Lord. Apparently he was a worshiper. He's learning. Who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent. And you know this, right? Abram lived in tents. If you follow his life, he lived in tents. Not in tents. But intense. But he was intense too. But see, the Bible tells us that we're like Abram, or supposed to be. We live in this tent. And folks, the New Testament tells us that we're just passing through. And the Bible says, live light. Not as light, it does tell you that. But cast away all the hindrances, any sin, but stay light so that you can do and go where God calls you. Because here's the situation. Your big mansion on a hill, when you die, what does it matter? Your big Maserati, nothing when you die. It means nothing. What means something is everything that you live for eternity. Love, joy, peace. It's the eternal things. Treasure that. And the Bible says we're just passing through. You're, you're just passing through here. If you live to be 70, praise the Lord. 90, 100, praise the Lord. But you're just passing through, and you're going to be with God in eternity. Abraham knew it. He lived in a tent, and he was rich. So we're like that. Eh. So he pitches his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east, and he builds an altar to the Lord. He worships some more and calls on the name of the Lord. That's what worshipers do. That's what people who uh, trust and love God do. We worship and we call upon the name of the Lord in prayer, and we study his word, and we obey his word. We're learning what how the just shall live by faith through a guy named Abram. And Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. <laughs> and listen... Here comes a mistake again. There's a famine. And God told him to go in this land, but he didn't trust God. So he went down to Egypt to an enemy. And it came to pass when he was close, he said to his wife, Indeed, I know that you're a woman of beautiful countenance. She's a looker. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they're going to say, This is his wife, and they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Please say you are my sister that it be well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. Listen, Abraham lies. But not really. What do you mean? Well, 
Sarai was his half-sister. You can look that up in Genesis chapter 20, verse 12. Sarai was Abram's half-sister, so he told a half-truth. Faith. The just shall live by faith. God's learning and growing him. And God puts us in situations so that our faith grows and is tested and matures. And and sometimes we fail. It takes faith to come into the family of God, but the just then shall live by faith. And sometimes our faith, nah. God calls you to Israel, you head to Egypt when it gets tough. You encounter some people who start resisting you and they're making you scared, but you know you have the Lord. So you just sort of tell a half-truth. And the next thing you know, it spirals out of control and somebody's life is in danger, including his own. The just shall live by faith. You're my sister. I may live because of you. Uh, Can you just say that, please? Can you imagine telling that to your wife? (laughs) You just be chill over there and lie to Pharaoh, the most, you know, humanly the most important person and one of the most important person in the world that can kill us like this. Just lie to him. You okay with that, Sarah? Uh, What are you telling me to do? So it was when Abram came to Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. She's a looker. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commanded her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. Of course he did. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Whoa, or Abram's wife. Whoa. You know, when I read that, you know what I think to myself? The mission of Abraham must have been really, really vital. Here it is. You ever been in a situation you just totally blew it? Come on. You might have even lied about something. You might have disobeyed the Lord. And you then saw the hand of God putting things in your way, making situations so that you're going to have to walk through this hard time But on the end of it, you're going to come out of it. Listen, and the Lord's going to be there with you in grace and mercy. You might suffer the consequences, but you're going to come out of it. Why? Because God has something vital for you. I don't know what it is. It might be one person sitting in a lonely place who you can reach and we can't and or whatever. And the Lord wants you to do it. He had something for Abram here, of course. The Lord's going to come from his line. But the Lord plagued Abram, and Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? (laughs) Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here's your wife. Take her, go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They sent him his way with his wife and all that he had. And what's fascinating or funny about this or a great lesson for us is sin is so totally stupid. Even Pharaoh knew, what are you doing? I mean, this was stupid. Ha ha, wait a minute. But God didn't give up on him. See, when we throw around terms like, oh, the grace of God, oh, the mercy of God, do we really understand the lengths and the heights and the depths of his love for us? Well, Abraham was learning. You're learning it. And we'll move on to chapter 13 next week. You've been quite patient. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. You can go downstairs and eat. We'll reconvene here at 1.30 if you're going to stay for the family meeting. Um, Just so you know, i got to say this. This would help everyone who makes this place their home. There's a book called Calvary Chapel Distinctives. If you want to know how the church operates and runs, and we can certainly, we're going to talk about that today, read this. Here's why. In order to be affiliated as a Calvary Chapel, you have to consent to these distinctives. 
I think we have some of these books downstairs. A lot of you bought them. If you don't, we can get you one. But I just want you to know that this is out there. Calvary Chapel Distinctives. It's important to understand how your church is governed, where the money goes. And I just want to brag on the Lord and you for a minute here. You folks are givers. And you're going to see that, I hope, today. Uh, So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this um, amazing work and uh, this guidance here. You know, 10, 11, 12. I'm so stoked, Lord, that I know we're a little late, but we got through three chapters. It's a miracle. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would be glorified here today, that we would love one another while we're eating and uh, sharing in a family meeting, and that many would come to know you through this little body until you come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.